Hello and welcome to Econoday Unplugged. It's Tuesday the 1st of October already 2019. Mark Pender is on the US East Coast and I'm Jeremy Hawkins here in London. Now it's been said that steering an economy is like driving along a winding road looking only in the rearview mirror. So as promised last week we thought this time round we'd have a chat about some of the economic data that try to bring policymakers and investors more up to date with where we are now rather than simply describing where we've been in the past. So for example one of the most important macroeconomic indicators is obviously GDP changes in which give us a measure of economic growth. But a key problem with this statistic is it tells us what growth was some time ago and doesn't provide any insight into something well more akin to real-time developments. The first stab at quarterly GDP in the US is only released by the Bureau of Economic Analysis around four weeks after the end of the reporting period, and the BEA are amongst the fastest of the major official statistics bodies to issue the data. In the Eurozone, the lag is typically in excess of four weeks, and for the UK and Japan, it's around six weeks. So then, the question is how to get a better reading on current economic developments. One way to do this is to look at higher frequency data, such as monthly or, or weekly figures, or even daily if you want to push the boat out that far, or alternative indicators that are available in advance of, and ideally highly correlated with the target variable itself. The first step then could be to use so-called soft data, surveys of business or consumer behavior. These are typically more qualitative than quantitative, but they can at least provide a general sense of what's going on. But our very popular Perching Managers Surveys, or PMIs for short, are a classic example. These are compiled in the private sector and normally released on the first and third working day of the following month. And in some cases, flash estimates are available during the third week of the reporting period itself, making them about as current as you can get. These also benefit from having a standardised structure across a wide range of countries, so particularly useful for international comparisons. They're also, of note, closely watched by central banks. In the Eurozone, the EU Commission's monthly economic sentiment index is another very well-respected indicator, contains a wealth of timely information and certainly a favourite of the ECB. It's also highly correlated with GDP. Much the same can be said of Germany's IFO survey. Mark, you've a ton on surveys, your ton of surveys yeah. on your side. So what do you think the ones which people really should be looking at, and indeed for that matter, are the some which you think really aren't worth the paper they're written on? Well, it's funny you should ask. Just this morning, we had the ISM Manufacturing Report, which is the most closely watched of any of the U.S. Um, soft surveys. Uh, they can also be called anecdotal surveys. You know, these are um, set samples, uh, as you mentioned, uh, done privately. And their methodology is a diffusion methodology, which is this, uh, it's measuring... Um, uh, change. Uh, it's actually looking for the uh, the center of distribution in a sample, and uh, what and uh, what we're finding is that there is a sharp slowdown underway uh, for this sample, and it corresponds with the other samples you've been talking about. And you, you mentioned something I don't I want to digress right away, but uh, that. These samples are useful for global comparisons, and it is, but it's also showing you how much uh, 
the global economy is tied together because we're getting all these diffusion readings. And here, uh, the 50 mark is uh, considered to be the center of distribution, which would be no change. Um, and uh, we've been below that. So uh, the um, these reports are are showing that there's uh, more companies uh, citing monthly month to month declines. That's an important point. They're month to month declines than are citing month to month expansion. And it's globally. It's and for manufacturing, I guess the worst I've seen is in Germany, which is, a, you know, a, an exceptionally strong indicator of trouble. And now we're getting that here um, on the U.S. side with the ISM uh, showing the same thing. Uh, oh, oh, let me just say that one thing about these these measures are that we're measuring composite activity. So uh, the idea is that you take th – these are kind of rough and tumble kind of things. So you, you, you take um, – uh, factors such as new orders, which is a leading indicator, or and you take production, which is a coincident indicator, and you take uh, employment, which may be a lagging indicator, and maybe even inventories, which are very hard to do, to describe what's good or what's bad, um, uh, and put those in a composite. So, it, uh, so you get these composite scores, and uh, and based on these different weightings of these different uh, 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 components. But there, it's all telling you the same story that's below 50. But if you really want to concentrate on the leading indicator in these reports, you look at new orders uh, because that's clean and that's, uh, you know, that's obvious within these, you know, this anecdotal soft survey, small sample uh, environment. And here in the, in the ISM, we have 47.3. Last month, it was 47.2. These are as low, very low and, and at the same time, we're getting new export orders in today's report, 41. That I haven't even had a chance yet, that this report has just been out, to go back and find when was the last time we saw new orders at 41. But that implies that um, something like 20%, uh, just off the top of my head, I haven't seen the actual breakdown, but maybe 20-25% uh, of the sample is reporting a contraction in new orders, and maybe 10% is reporting uh, in advance of new orders. Usually those are very tight or, or, or the ones that are reporting a gain or in front. So these are a very significant sig signal of trouble. And I can't I exaggerate how the ISM is uh, taken not only by government officials, policymakers, central bankers, but by uh, companies themselves, small companies, large companies, General Electric, uh, th those size companies, they will cite the ISM in their actual uh, statement to their investors, saying, this is the outlook, this is what, you know, what's been going on overall, instead of citing government data, which is a, and that's because the ISM goes back so long, 100 years and stuff, you know, so. And of course, it's timely, and I think this is, you know, I suppose what mm -hmm. a lot of this really comes down, the bottom line in all of this is it's kind of, the, I guess, you know, the age-old problem of a, the trade-off between timeliness and accuracy. Um, you know, the sooner the data are released, typically speaking, the less reliable they're going to be and the more likely they are to be revised at some point mm -hmm. but i think at least certainly as far as financial markets are concerned well a little knowledge is seen to be better than no logic at all so i think you know the high mm. frequency statistics all these surveys you know if they're more up to date than the actual you know the data they're really trying to measure it's what these markets going to go with and perhaps find out they're right or they're wrong or whatever but that just seems where the market works and it, and say, it, yeah, it also raises a, a self-fulfilling prophecy or a self-fulfilling fulfilling factor that even though you do have a small sample and it may not even be 
um, you know, correlate with actually the whole economy. But if you do see uh, a, a directional shift there, that will not only have implications or, uh, uh, for the financial markets, uh, investors taking that to heart, but also the companies themselves cutting back yeah, on, sure. on business investment if it's weak and inc- increasing business investment if it's strong. So it's, uh, it's, it's part, it's intertwined and it's part of the system. So, you know, uh, it's a, a fascinating thing. And it kind of started, you know, the NAPM, it used to be the NAPM, the National Association of Purchasing Managers uh, here in the U.S., and that changed to the Institute for Supply Management maybe 15 years ago. And um, that was really right among the very first economic uh, series published any, anywhere for in, in the United States. So uh, this system uh, goes back quite a long way. So. Indeed, and I think that's a very fair point. Just going back to one, you know, when you first started talking, that it's not just a case of looking at what's happening now. As far as these surveys are concerned, they do contain potentially very useful um, forward-looking indicators, which investors really want to know about as well. Um, I should also mention, I was just in passing, it's not just the private sector which come out with these surveys. You know, if we just look across Europe, for example, um, you have uh, ISTAT out of Italy and ANSI, the uh, the French statistics office. They both produce uh, business confidence and consumer confidence indicators, along with a lot of other government agencies as well. And they'll use them simply because they get hold of this data before they get hold of the likes of consumer spending or GDP, whatever well, it may be. Well, that brings up the point, Jeremy, that uh, what we're really dealing with maybe are just big companies confidence surveys um you know uh they do break down all the different factors it looks very official you have you know imports new export orders you have input Mm -hmm. prices selling prices but um these samples are kind of rough and tumble uh you know some of them are uh you know personal contacts with the with the survey chairman with with the members of the of the sample um some of them they you know they mail out things and we'll find out who mails them back you know yeah sure and you don't know, uh, ex- and and there's no double checking. There's no confirmation that uh, a respondent's uh, uh, you know responses are, are are actually you know accurate. Um, so to me, they're a little bit like a just roughly you know just ask the people you know do you see uh, uh, your business improving six months from now, and uh, and those and th- actually those questions are part of some of these surveys as some of the newer ones. Um, and those readings aren't very good right now either. But, um, I mean, what do you make of a, of a German manufacturing sample coming in at a 41? I mean, is it going to go to the thirties next? I mean, where's I mean, the bottom? Well, I mean, where is the bottom? We, I mean, you know, yeah, the obvious answer to that is we, we simply don't know, but I mean, you're, you're perfectly right. It is a, a really horrible number. Um, and I suppose it has to be said, I mean, talking about you know, how useful are these surveys? Well, I suspect by the time we get the September industrial production figures out of Germany, the German manufacturing sector will technically be in recession. Uh, at the moment, it's not that far down, but if we take these um, IFO, IFO surveys or the, the PMIs at face value, it really does suggest that the, you know, the downswing we have in Germany industry at the moment is by no means over and it's got a long way to go. Um, one of the reasons why we saw such a horrendous reading um, for the PMI for September um, was due to the, the acute weakness of orders. So again, this goes back to looking at the four component and if we believe the orders data there, it really suggests that you know, the complete collapse in demand domestically and from overseas as well. Uh, which you know is just about worst cases you could get as far as Germany's concerned. So it does really look pretty grim out there. 
You know what you have in Europe that we don't really have in the U.S. is business sentiment uh, surveys. Ours are concentrated very strongly and very traditionally on consumer um, sentiment. Um, and you do get, like I was just mentioning, some questions in some of the reports, but these are new. They're not like the Consumer Confidence Survey or the Consumer Sentiment Survey, and those are just the two leading ones on the consumer side. So it's hard to find a business survey over here. Do you see a separation between business sentiment and consumer sentiment in the different European um, uh, series? On the whole, I think as things currently stand, you could probably say yes to that. Um, I suppose you've got to be a bit careful which countries you look at. But by and large, I think it's fair to say that as far as the business side of things is concerned, um, sentiment is, well, you're talking about getting on for decade lows across the Eurozone. Germany, not surprisingly, be a case of point, particularly as far as manufacturing is concerned. We're talking about some of the worst levels we've ever seen. The consumer sector on the whole, though, pretty well across the Eurozone, and indeed, to some extent, it's got to be said for the UK, Brexit issues notwithstanding. I think you know, we, we're still at the moment in an environment which, in which although Eurozone growth has slowed significantly, um, despite that, we've continued to see a steady downward trend in unemployment. Wages have been gradually accelerating while inflation has been kept so low that you know, real wage growth has actually been moving up quite nicely. So although that hasn't translated into a particularly strong period for consumption growth, you know, consumer sentiment, is, I think, is reflecting the fact that consumer or household fundamentals are still in relatively good shape, whereas businesses, which I think are more forward-looking, are taking a much more negative view. Now, does that raise the possibility then that you know uh, uh, consumer sentiment lags as employment lags, as consumer sentiment lags business uh, uh, sentiment? Could well be. I mean, I suppose it's perhaps a bit of a heroic thing to say, but it's certainly possible, I think, in the current downswing anyway. Um, of course, what we're waiting for is really to see whether or not the labour market's going to start responding to the slowdown in growth. Um, one of the key factors that's helped to underpin Eurozone consumer sentiment in general has been the fact that the German labour market um, has held up remarkably well, given what's been going on in terms of domestic demand. Now, there's certainly been some signs over the last few months that the buoyancy of that market is gradually beginning to ease a little bit, but it's still very early days to say that it's actually about to enter some kind of downturn. But I think you know, the key here is going to be if we see the labour market turning down, mm -hmm. and that's going to be the result of companies deciding not to make new hiring or make you know, increased redundancies mm -hmm. or actually just simply leave, you know, push labour out, then that could start hitting cons consumer confidence, definitely. Well, you know, in the U.S., I, I, this is just, I guess, just assumptions. I'm making generalized assumptions, and, and correct me, please. But here in the U.S., I remember 10 years ago, we, I was covering it very closely, the company news. And during the financial crisis, manufacturers and financial services especially were laying off people, cutting people, culling their workforces en masse right away. Huge numbers. You knew right away every, people were in trouble. Um and I guess the and you know here we have a, a less of a tradition of a labor market, less of a tradition of protecting labor, uh, and I think in Europe they have more of that tradition, at least from our perspective. And I'm saying again generalizations, but um, could it be that there's it takes it's harder to lay off people in Germany, for instance, um, than it is uh, here? And so if in, in that case. Um, you know, the companies themselves or, or the government will end up supporting these workers and hold to hold their jobs longer uh, uh, than the actual economic cycle would uh, would would. That would 
I think that's probably a fair comment. Yeah, I th- certainly I think you know from a typically the European standpoint, the, the perception, rightly or wrongly, that the US has much more of a higher and far approach to employment than you'll see across you know, the lights of Europe. For countries like Italy and particularly France, actually laying off workers is particularly difficult. Germany, to be honest, I think it's rather more easy. But even so, looking across Europe as a whole, I think it's harder to shed labour um, in Europe than it is in the States. So yes, I think what you say there is probably is probably perfectly fair. So I think you're a better indicator in some ways, as far as Europe's concerned, is to look at something like the w- average work week, whereby if you can't necessarily shed labour, what you can start to do is cut back on the working hours and reduce some of your costs that way. So that can be seen as some kind of, you know, perhaps, you know, a forward cyclical indicator rather than looking at the actual, you know, the jobless numbers, whatever themselves. Uh-huh. So uh, l- let's put together all of, all these indicators that we're looking at, these soft indicators. And what are they saying for the... Um, for the fourth quarter, I, I think I can say for the U.S., it's um, it's not good. No, well, I can almost cry over here, I think. Um, if we put a straight line through some of the numbers coming out of the Eurozone at the moment, I mean, it's certainly possible we could see a contraction in fourth quarter Eurozone GDP. Now, it's an early call yet, obviously, because we don't simply don't have any numbers as far as the fourth quarter is concerned. But the third quarter is going to probably be, it's going to do well to be above flat, I suspect. And if particularly if we continue to see Germany spiralling south, then I think there's every chance we could see negative growth out of the Eurozone once we get, you know, once we get into the Christmas period. And what do you think that would do to the financial markets? Well, I think it's interesting. Is I'm looking at how financial markets are positioned at the moment. I think you've got to say that from the inflation side, well, they've really taken the view that inflation is a completely dead issue now. I know we've seen eurozone, uh, well, European bond bond yields move up a li- little bit over the course of the last week or so, in line with the US. But um, that I think has had much more to do with you know some of the supply issues going on more than anything else. Um, I think though, by and larger in terms of inflation expectations, they're still extremely low. We've got negative interest rates across you know, a whole chunk of the, you know, the Eurozone um, interest rate curve now. UK, we still got a 0.75% bank rate, but there's more and more talk now that the bank may be forced into cutting if we get a hard Brexit. So by and large, the market's already kind of half anticipating a continued slowdown. Whether or not they're actually going for you know, a real negative, I'm not so sure, because if we were to get that, the bond market may be okay, but I think some of these equity markets could be on for a really rough ride. Well, it's funny you should say that. I'm just looking at a table, the, uh, the data Germany's DAX is up 17.7% year to date. Now, uh, you know, that also reflects the, the market uh, collapse at the end of last year. Um, so, but if you go year to year, that gain is, is only 0.4%. So it's hard to actually measure how or to uh, assess how the stock markets are behaving. But at least from the bottom of last year's a big sell-off, it's been very strong. Um and you would imagine if you get layoffs and you get uh, economic slowing, uh, global slowing, you would think that that would come down. True. Yeah. Okay. Um, just before we leave this indicator, Lark, I want to ask Mark about the uh, non-farm payroll on Friday since obviously it's employment week in the States this week. Um, uh-huh. Just to quickly address some of the other indicators or things are going on anywhere around the world, particularly with a reference to UK, actually. Um 
for most countries, GDP accounts are measured on a, a quarterly basis, first, second, third, fourth quarter. You have a various a number of estimates of those. Um, what the UK, though, has started to do as of last year is to, in re is to release some or introduce, I should say, monthly estimates of GDP. Now, these are, again, an attempt by the official National Statistics Office over here to try and get information about how the whole economy is performing to the policymakers before almost it becomes so old it's kind of redundant. So these monthly numbers are issued round about six weeks after the reporting month. So they're still well behind the likes of the Purchasing Managers Index indices and some of the other surveys we've been talking about. They do give a much earlier official estimate of total output and having to wait for the quarterly number. Now, being early, it's a kind of a limited data set and it's purely based on the output sectors, which is one of the downsides to it. Uh, there's no guide to any of the GDP expenditure components, but nonetheless, it's kind of a move by by one official, the big official stats bodies to try and get out more timely data. Canada's been releasing monthly GDP data for a long time now, although if you remember rightly, the lag there is up to any best part of two months or so. And the other thing which is going on a slight tangent is, again, I'm talking about the UK here because perhaps I'm not better than anywhere else. Um, Earlier this year, the, the ONS, the stats body here, started releasing a set of what it calls new faster economic, sorry, get this right, new faster <laughs> indicators of economic activity. What, what country uh, is this? This is the UK. UK. Um, now, at the moment, say this is new, and so the data, not many people have, it, have even noticed them. But what they are, they're monthly figures which are available up to one month in advance of the official estimates of, of GDP. And what they're using are they're using indicators of revenue from the Revenue and Customs Office of value-added tax returns. So that's looking at uh, diffusion indicators for turnover, expenditure, and also the different types of VAT, particularly whether you get new VAT reporters. They're also looking at road traffic sensor data for England from the, the Highways England Commission, and that's looking at the likes of monthly average road traffic counts. It's also looking at monthly average road traffic speeds, and particularly in the port areas as well. In addition to that, thirdly, they're looking at uh, ship tracking data from the automated identification system, the AIS system, so-called. Now, these things are all being released every month, so about three and a half weeks or so before the target period and although the ONS is keen to say look this is not a this is not a substitute for GDP it's something they're putting out with view to try and look at an alternative way of measuring what's going on in the economy in a more timely manner so I think it's you know at the moment these are so early that you can't really glean too much yeah. information out of them because there's no historical precedent exactly. but but, you know, keep an eye on these things. I'm quite sure if the UK is going to do it, we're going to start seeing some of the other countries dotted around the world as well. And, of course, once that happens, financial markets will leap on it. Yeah, we have to get in there. But, the um, you know, what we've been doing for a long time is measuring credit card uh, um, activity during the holidays. And it's yep. never panned out at all. I yeah, mean, I know. Do they work or don't? No, no, it's a real problem. That one definitely does not work. So, and you know, it, but it's interesting that they have, uh, and they've been talking about that in the U.S. as well, not in a government um, capacity, but in a private capacity, uh, you know, measuring uh, road traffic and those kinds of things. Um, but they haven't been officially part of the calendar or part of the uh, yeah. official state of, we still have, for us, I guess, it's still, you know, the the index of leading economic indicators. And um and you know, two of those are imputed, right? The there's yep. a t 
two measures of those, they just guess. The conference yeah. board just actually guesses on um, on what the, the manufacturing uh, two different manufacturing components will do. So, the, but the future is still hard to hard to see, isn't it? It is. No change there. All right. Well, since we're talking about the future, um, Mr. Pender, uh, yeah. it is non, non-farm payroll week. Uh-huh. Give, me a, give, me, give me a quick pricey of what we should be looking for on Friday. What, what are we expecting? It uh, looks like a solid report. Uh, despite all our gloom and doom, uh, the labor market and despite these, uh, you know, the ISM's employment measure was 46.3, which is very weak, uh, second uh, sub-50 measure in a row. Um, there was still uh, the, the sample here for that uh, we track at Econoday still is looking for 3,000 gain in manufacturing payrolls that would match the prior gain. Overall, uh, it's a 145,000 um, uh, consensus for non-farm payrolls. That's a very res- that's down from um, you know uh, uh, earlier. Um, at last year's pace, but it's still a very, very solid pace. Um, with average er- earnings now, we've had uh, four, we've had three, 0.3% monthly increases, and then in August is 0.4, which is kind of a red signal. Now we're looking at a, a 0.3. That's what the forecasters are looking for. So maybe that is a sign of diminishing capacity in the labor to market. I'm not sure the Federal Reserve, certainly the hawks in the Federal Reserve will be looking at that, but uh, mm-hmm. the overall, I'm not sure it's going to sway them when they've already signaled that they're looking for not just weakness in the manufacturing sector, particularly they're work- looking for weakness in, in capital goods producers, people who make businesses that make um, equipment uh, you know, for future production. And when interest in that goes down, then th- that's specifically what the Fed is looking for. And it's, it's kind of funny that these reports don't really uh, key on that uh, as they p- possibly could. It's kind of lumped into the manufacturing group. But um, uh, it's hard, to, you know, we're going to get a good solid report, um, but I think w- that's what the expectations are. But I don't know if that's going to really affect um, I think this ISM has a big effect. I think that this ISM is kind of settled uh, that, uh, you know, general expectations that maybe there will be one more rate cut this year, even though that was kind of put in question at the last FOMC. Um, they refer to the ISM too much. They'll have to change their whole uh, how they describe or how they weigh their economic, um, <laughs> you know. To, you know, to get away with just, they can't really abandon the ISM because it's just so uh, right. Too structured. Well yeah. 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 All right. Thank you for that. Um, right. Just before we wrap it up, then I should mention that earlier today, we did see a cut by the Reserve Bank of Australia. Uh, so their official cash rate uh, down 25 basis points to another new record low of just 0.75%. And comments coming out the RBA kind of intimate that they're more than happy to do introduce further cuts if necessary. Well, uh, how, many further, how many further cuts can they do? Right. Well, they're cutting I suppose to 25, you know, that's another that's another three and then perhaps quantitative easing. We know that they're they're certainly contemplating it, even if they don't actually want to do it. Anyway, got the Aussie dollar down to a ten and a half year low, so it does show that um, financial markets are still sensitive to interest rates. Well, well, it's right. also, also yeah. interesting because Australia's never had a uh, a recession in anyone's memory, right? That's right. And, that's and, right. And, you, and this rate's looking like it might be there, right? Or there's there's a risk. The central bank must see a risk of a recession. I guess so. so. If they fall, I guess. If they all of a sudden, even though they're not widely looked at, their GDP forecasters don't, you know, that's not the the biggest thing to look at. But if that goes 
into the negative territory, that would be a you know a, a resounding piece of economic data. Psychologically, you're right. I think that could be quite important because people assume that well, that never happens in Australia, as you said. Ah, oh, there's lots of interesting things going on. Um, okay, well, that probably is long enough for us anyway, so let's wrap it up there then. From Mark and myself, thanks as always for listening. Do keep an eye on all these economic indicators in Econoday's global economic calendar, and we'll be back next week. Bye for now.